godly men who were not from Texas. And that, that is always, I, obviously, I grew up in Texas, born and raised here, uh, have spent time outside of Texas, but didn't do that until I got into college. So for 18 years, I only knew Texas. I only knew Texas culture, uh, didn't know anything outside of that. And so, uh, so meeting these two guys um, this week was, uh, was really encouraging for me. One was from Portland, uh, Oregon, uh, and then uh, the other was from Canada. And uh, both loved Jesus, godly men, had great conversations with these guys. Uh, and both conversations kind of centered around this idea of culture. It was really interesting to hear their feedback to me on Texas culture. And so uh, <laughs> some people are laughing because you may not be from Texas and you know what I'm about to say. Texas culture is great, right? There are lots and lots of things that by God's grace, by God's common grace, uh, we do well, right? So they, and they acknowledge that, like, man, you guys are super hospitable, you're super welcoming, uh, you're really, really nice, which is a little bit strange and concerning. Uh, like, is this, is this niceness real? Is it, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, had all those conversations, but they said, you know, the thing about uh, every culture, including their own in Portland and in Canada, every culture has a shadow side to it as well. Okay, so the hospitality is good, the hardworking nature is good, the I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and get the job done because that's the right thing to do, the duty, all of those kinds of things uh, are good things, but there's a shadow side to these things as well. And I think for us, and what we're going to look to in the text today, is this idea of neediness. Because of those things sometimes, you and I, we grow up in a culture where we're told to work hard and do your best and be a good person and tell the truth and be trustworthy. All of those are good things, but as we begin to do some of those things decently well, we can lose sight of our desperate neediness before God. Whereas in other cultures maybe that we can look out and we can say, gosh, like the culture's so bad, right? Like it's so messed up, morality is turned upside down, and, and all of those things are true, in, in various ways. It's easy for us sometimes to look at those things and say, well, because we believe this about marriage, because we believe that, because we're pro-life, good things, uh, we, we can, if we're not careful, we can lose sight at our desperate neediness before a holy God. That our religion, our goodness, actually clouds what we ought to be seeing in light of the holiness of God. And so what James is going to talk about today is simply this idea of arrogance, okay? I told a brother uh, this week, I did not choose the book of James because I wanted to hammer us every week. That just happens to be what the book does uh, over and over and over again, okay? Um, but it's this idea of arrogance that you and I more often than not, maybe more often than we think, live and function out of this disposition of arrogance. And James is going to talk about how we do that in two ways, judgmentalism culture of judgmentalism, and a culture of perceived time, culture of assumption, as it pertains to our life, how much time you and I actually have. Okay, so let's look at uh, both of those things. We'll start with uh, judge, uh, judgmentalism. Let me read the text one more time. He says, verses 11 and 12, do, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So he, he starts off, he doesn't call them as he has previously in texts that we've discussed in the, in the weeks prior. He doesn't call them adulterers as he did a few weeks ago. Um, one foot in, one foot out, like, hey, we love Jesus, but we don't really live as if we love Jesus because we, we kind of function like everybody else does in the world. That he, he calls that adultery. He doesn't call us adulterers in this text. He doesn't uh, call us double-minded or shifting like the waves or any of those things that he has identified as we can often be uh, 
uh, in previous texts, but he does refer to them as brothers and sisters. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. So he's talking to Christians. James is talking to Christians. As we've said this before, there's a lot of call to action uh, through this book. That call to action is not a call for non-Christians to do things in order for God to save them. Okay, that's cultural religion, and that is, that is not the religion of the Bible. That's not the gospel. Okay, the gospel is not if you make yourself this and if you do these things, then God will see your good works and he'll save you as a result of those good works. It's actually the opposite of that. It's you and I have absolutely blown it before a holy God. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And so God in kindness sent his son to do for you and I what we can never do for ourselves. Why can we rejoice today in worship? Why can we lift our hands in praise? Why can we uh, 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 experience joy and happiness despite our circumstances? Not because you come in great, but because Jesus is great. And so that's not what James is saying, but he is addressing Christians about this idea that to be a Christian is to be a disciple. Meaning to be a Christian is to make uh, your allegiance with Jesus. Your primary allegiance is to Jesus. Keep in mind that the New Testament was written in the first century in a Roman culture where Caesar was deemed to be God. And so as these authors are writing empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're telling these first century Christians, your allegiance is not to Caesar, it's to Jesus. And you and I need to hear that today as well, don't we? Our allegiance is to Jesus above everything. Political affiliation, preferences, your allegiance, our allegiance is to Jesus and his word. That's what has to form and shape everything that you and I are about and everything that you and I uh, do. And so it's not a call to do right things in order to be made right with God. It is a call to say, as John Calvin would say, uh, that faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by life change, empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells within you and I. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but it does mean there is going to be a radical change in our life as a result of Jesus saving us, that's going to be marked primarily by repentance. By repentance. No repentance, no salvation. Can't say I love Jesus, but you don't have repentance. Okay? So that's kind of the context, and he's addressing them as brothers and sisters, and he tells them this, do not speak evil against one another. This is the command. Throughout the Bible, speaking uh, against others, which is a way to translate that literally, don't speak against one another. Speaking against uh, others throughout the Bible involves things like speaking against one in legitimate authority, as we see the nation of Israel do in the book of Exodus when God calls Moses and Aaron to lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, the people grumbled. Who did they grumble against? They grumbled against God and against Moses. Okay? And so speaking uh, against one another involves that, speaking against those in uh, legitimate authority. We're not talking about uh, people in the congregation speaking against a pastor who's disqualified himself. That's not what it's talking about. Legitimate authority is where the Bible says it becomes sinful. It involves slandering or gossiping about someone in secret, not going to one another with our issues and our concerns and our frustrations, but talking about that person. And man, I, <laughs> we're all guilty of this. Uh, the context of something like a community group saying something like, hey, would you guys just pray for so-and-so? They're really having a hard time. And all of a sudden, something that seems to be really innocent and really sanctified becomes gossip. Bringing incorrect accusations against one another. Okay, All of these are ways that the Bible is calling the people of God who have been redeemed by Jesus not to speak against one another. 
So why are they not to speak evil against one another? He says it in verse, the latter part of verse 11 and verse 12. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James often will use Jesus' teachings as well as wisdom teachings from from the Proverbs and various other places to uh, uh, explain and elaborate a specific point. And so Jesus at one point in the Gospels tells his followers, he says, uh, says, hey, don't fear man. Why? Because man can only kill the body. Don't, Don't fear the one who can only kill the body. Fear the one who what? Can destroy the body and the soul in hell. Okay, we've talked about this as a church before. The primary cure I think that the Bible gives to the fear of man, which we all in the room struggle with in various ways, is the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. It's, he becomes bigger. He becomes more transcendent, more beautiful, more powerful. We, we see and uh, view the, the display of God's holiness as the prophet Isaiah did, and we say, woe is me. When we're in that place, what can man do to you and I? You see? So he's saying, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can throw, cast the body and the soul in hell. And James is kind of saying the same thing. He's saying, because you have, I thought that was AC. He's saying, uh, he's saying because, uh, because you have spoken evil against one another, uh, what you've done is you've made yourself judges. Okay. There is a difference in the New Testament between judging and being judgmental between judging and being judgmental. The New Testament calls Christians to judge one another. Sounds like a strange statement, right? But it does do that. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This is what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't go tell your small group. Uh, Don't go tell this other person. Go and tell him or her their fault if they've sinned against you. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you of two If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Famous verse, there's the context of the verse, okay? James isn't saying that if you're alone and praying to God, he's not with you because you don't have two or three others with you. It's not what he's saying. It's a passage about church discipline. This is one of the primary texts that we get and how Jesus is telling us as a church uh, to practice uh, discipline. 1 Corinthians 5 Paul echoes the same thing. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Listen to this. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the way the Bible talks about judgment and uh, talks about judging one another, the way that we are to judge one another in the context of church discipline is always to be done patiently, humbly, 
taking the log out of your own eye before we see to take the speck out of our brother's eye and for the purpose of flourishing and reconciliation. That's what church discipline's for. Deliver the man over to Satan, not so that Satan just destroys him, but so that, so that his flesh will be destroyed. His indwelling sin will be destroyed, and by God's grace, he might be granted repentance that would lead to life and restoration in the body. This is for the flourishing and good of that person, and it's for, for the purity of the body of Christ. That's why we discipline within the church, by God's grace. And so James isn't saying don't do that. He's talking about a, a culture uh, of judgmentalism, a culture of judgmentalism. Judgmentalism, on the other hand, is a heart posture that attempts to put you and I in the place of God. It's a heart posture that intends to put you and I in the place of God, where we can look at one another and we can pretend as if we see the motive uh, of one's heart. We begin to place definitive declarations on that person, on their salvation, on their standing before God. It's, it's as if we can see into the heart of man uh, something that only God, who is the ultimate and right judge, can do and does do. That's what he's telling them not to do. And listen, this is exactly what the devil wants. Okay, we talked last week about this command that James gives us to resist the devil and he will flee. Why does he want you to resist him? Because Peter says that the devil is a roaring lion waiting for somebody to devour. He hates me. He hates you. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. He hates your kids. He hates Jesus. He wants you destroyed because your life proclaims the excellencies of Jesus, who is his demise. We, and I, I speak for myself in this as well. I had a moment last week where I, man, I was so bogged down under the weight of the devil's accusations over my life. I mean, it was like, I just couldn't say, I, I couldn't see anything clearly to, to the point of despair. What's the point? What's the point of continuing to go? I'm just this, 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 and this. You guys know Martin Luther? Familiar? Yep. Okay. Uh, Martin, the story goes that Martin Luther, in hearing these devil's accusations, would actually agree, uh, yeah, you're right about these things. You're right that I am this, this, and this, that I've done this, this, and this. But Jesus, isn't that the good news that you and I have in the gospel? That, that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word? That because of the blood of Jesus, though you and I are guilty of these things, and we are, the solution is not that we fight the devil by saying, no, I didn't do that. No, I'm not that bad. No, I didn't mess up that way. But it's that we turn to Jesus and proclaim him. He's the demise of Satan, not you and I. And because of what he's done on our behalf, on our behalf, because he's given his very righteousness to you and I, not in small increments, but in full. That the Bible says that you and I are the righteousness of God in Christ. That phrase in Christ is one that you ought to familiarize familiarize yourself with, and I should as well, that means that you couldn't be more safe and secure than you are right now if you're in Jesus. Because God the Father looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He says the same of you and I who are in him. Because of the merit of Jesus, he's well pleased. Not because of you and I. That's how we fight the enemy. That's how we, we resist the enemy. What, what does the devil want? One of the things, as one author would say, he, he asked this question, how does the devil intend to defeat us? Here's one way, by a judgmental attitude. A judgmental attitude within the body of Christ. He says, the devil designs to make a church into a harsh environment where people are overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Such a church stops feeling like Jesus. 
tell the elder apprentices all the time, those guys who are in the pipeline to become pastors at Redemption Hill, Lord willing, uh, that these culture things start with us. The elders hate one another. If we're backbiting one another, gossiping against one another, talking badly about one another, judging one another's motives and hearts, that this is going to trickle into the church. It's not all on the elders, however. It is on the congregation as well. James writes, writes this letter to a church. Christians, what the devil wants is for a judgmental disposition and attitude to infiltrate the church so that the church begins to feel harsh to people. Can't show up on Sunday unless we put the mask on first. Sunday best, don't talk about your problems, don't confess your sin, because I know what's going to happen on the other side. And so one mentor of mine says, when we're vulnerable, we hand somebody our sword, and they can either defend you with it or they can kill you with it. Let it not be by God's grace that we would have a culture like that. We got to sound very Texan right now. We got to fight that. You have to fight that. You have to resist him. His desire is against you. His desire is against us. He doesn't want this to continue. And one of the ways that he's going to do that is he's going to tempt us toward judgmentalism. Can't make you and I do anything because we're empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit if we're in Christ, but he can tempt you and he is stronger than you and he is stronger than me. Jesus tells Peter, his desire was to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I've prayed for you. We need Jesus to fight for us in this. But you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, fight as well. You got to fight. Otherwise, this, this will inevitably destroy us. Okay, one pastor says, uh, I'm always five minutes away from ruining my life forever, and so are you. I think that's a good mentality to have. You're capable of anything. I'm capable of anything. Let's just be honest about that. Because we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in Jesus. Does that make sense? So we, we fight the enemy. How, how, do we, how do we combat these things? How do we combat this judgmental attitude? We, we do so through the gospel. The power of the gospel. This is how... We combat the arrogance of judgmentalism. The cross of Christ allows no one to walk away arrogant. So do we as Christians still struggle with arrogance? Absolutely we do. That's why he's writing the letter. Remember, he's not writing a letter to non-Christians. He's writing it to Christians. We still struggle with these things. And so what do we do? And we, we look at the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? Say it again. He died. He did die. What else? That's great. Thank you, Michelle. It's courageous. You're the first one. What else? He took God's wrath. What that means for the believer in Jesus, that means there's no more wrath for you and I. That means the anger of God because of our sin doesn't burn hot against us anymore. We live and breathe and move and function and operate in grace. Because of the cross. What else? You can talk. Unless you don't know. And say it again. He, he cried out to his father. Yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken at the cross by the father. 
for the first and only time in all of eternity, Jesus, God, the eternal son was, was separated from the father because of our sin. Anything else? He became sin. That's great. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The, the cross both humbles us absolutely. Okay, I'll, I'll reference the prophet Isaiah again who in the Old Testament, he sees Jesus high and lifted up on his throne. Not often the way that we think about Jesus, but that's who he is today. He's, there's no higher name. There's no higher king. There's no higher Lord. There's no higher authority. That's how Isaiah the prophet saw Jesus, a religious man. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And then it says that the angel flew to Isaiah and a very strange gospel foreshadowing with a coal in his hand. And he touched Isaiah's lips with the coal and his sin was atoned for. The greatest need that you have this morning, the greatest need that I have this morning is the forgiveness of sins and our need for reconciliation to God. It's the greatest need. It's not money. It's not comfort. It's not family. It's not health. Forgiveness of sin. And it's happened. If you're in Jesus, blessed is the man or woman whose sins are forgiven whose lawless deeds are covered. The cross absolutely humbles you and I, and it induces joy in you and I. Because we don't have to wake up in the morning and say, gosh, God's given me another chance. I better get it right today. But we can wake up in the morning and know that joy comes in the morning because Jesus is still alive and he doesn't change. This, this is the only thing in the universe that will combat a disposition of judgmentalism in us that we can actually be a culture, a gospel culture, where sinners, when they're at their worst, want to and feel safe running to Jesus in the midst of their sin and one another without the mask. Without having to clean yourself up first, run together. Because that's the kind of culture that we've developed by God's grace. That's the only kind of culture that the Bible says we ought to have as a church. So we, we fight the devil, we fight this judgmental attitude toward one another. The second form of arrogance that James talks about is, I'm just calling it the, arrog- the arrogance of functional atheism. The arrogance of functional atheism. So let me read the text. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Okay, James is simply reminding us of our transitory existence. He's speaking to Christians who are arrogantly assuming how their business plans are going to turn out. Next year, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to make this much money. We're going to do this, this, and this. Not only do they assume they'll live tomorrow, but they assume that they'll make a profit. So here's what James is not saying. He's not saying that plans, goals, and ambitions are wrong. Okay? He's not saying that if you have a planner from Office Depot and you're type A and all of those kinds of things, that you're in sin because of that. Like you should just never plan anything in your life, which is kind of how I live my life a little bit. Uh, so praise God for Taylor and many others, the gift of administration. He's not saying that if, uh, if you are like that, then you're somehow uh, in sin. 
But this isn't merely planning that these Christians are doing. It's a general disposition of heart. It's an attitude that assumes that they or we have more control over over there in our lives than we actually do. It's functional atheism. It's saying, it's, this is a theme through the book. It's saying that we believe in this amazing reality that the Bible talks about called God's sovereignty. Okay, that, that God, when we say God is sovereign, we're saying that God is in control of everything. He's not like a clockmaker that creates everything, flicks a switch, and then things just run the way they're supposed to run. That's not what the Bible teaches about who God is. He's in control of everything. He's governing everything. The reason that you and I sit here today and take that breath that you're taking right now in this moment is because God is decreeing it to be. And when God says, stop breathing, you and I will stop breathing. Now that might be a terrifying thing to you, maybe, but if you're a believer, follower of Jesus, that ought to be one of the most comforting realities in the universe. Because he's good. There's no higher good. There's no higher love. There's no more compassionate care. All of these things derive their source from God who is these things. He's rebuking this idea that these Christians are saying, I love and follow Jesus, but I'm functioning my life in a way as if I'm in control of all this. I know that next year we're going to do this. We're going to do this. Here's our plan. We're going to make this much money. We're going to do this. He's rebuking that idea. It's, it's an element of functional atheism. Uh, any of you guys ever gotten the call? You know what I mean when I say the call? Like the call that just drops your stomach? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, I, there were a handful of those that came to my mind uh, as I was thinking about this. One, uh, we, you know, I've talked about it before, but my middle son was diagnosed with epilepsy. I remember just a specific moment that Sydney and I are in the hospital and we're on our knees and doctors and nurses can't wake him up. There's like 15 of them in the room and they're drawing blood and he's still not moving. And, and uh, man, I remember hearing uh, my wife say, do you think he's going to die? Like, you never think about hearing those words when you're a parent. What about you guys? If you haven't experienced this moment, here's the thing about death. Like, death never comes at an opportune time, does it? Like, it never comes when you and I are like, I'm just expecting somebody to die today, somebody that I love dearly. Or I'm expecting today to go into the doctor's office and hear everything's great. We we do expect those things. My 34-year-old buddy who two years ago went into the doctor's office from some stomach pain, found out that he had stage four colon cancer. Never comes at an opportune time. Why? A couple of reasons. One, it's the enemy of God and it's our enemy too. Okay, death is not good. It's the enemy of God. That's why Jesus wept when Lazarus died. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but Jesus wept at the reality of death. It's not the original design that God created things to, to be. But it's also because you and I assume tomorrow. We all do this. We all assume, I'm doing it right now, that when we get in our car after church this afternoon, we're going to go home and we're going to make it there. We all assume that tomorrow we're going to see our spouse. We're going to see our kids. We're going to see our friends. We all assume that next Sunday we're going to be right back here in this place. We all do this. James is warning against this. 
Not that we should live in fear of this, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me? That's not, it's not what it is. But it's this heart disposition that recognizes, believes, and rests in the reality of God's providence. Jesus is in control of everything. I would argue that almost all of our anxiety, all of my anxiety, is a result of us not living in the present moment, which is the only moment that Jesus has decreed we have, that we know of. It's either living in the past, thinking about all the terrible things we've done, and not believing that the cross of Christ is sufficient to cover those things, or it's living in the future, assuming that we're going to have it. He says, your life is a mist. That's not here today, gone tomorrow. That's here today, gone today. He says, your life is a mist. Here's the good news in light of all of that. For Christians and for non-Christians in the room who today, by God's grace, will repent of your sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Here's the good news. His command is, you ought to say, instead of living that way, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. This is not James saying you just, I want you to recite a legalistic mantra before you say that you have plans. Okay? Or like throwing by God's grace in front of everything you say because you feel like if you don't say that, people are going to assume that you don't really believe in God's grace. Not a bad thing to say. I say it all the time. But he's not just talking about a saying that we say. He's talking about a disposition of heart. Instead of saying you believe in Jesus, but living functionally as if Jesus is in control of every area of your life, what you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this and that. This is a different disposition of heart. This is a disposition of heart that simply believes that you and I are completely and forever in the strong, good, and gracious hands of Jesus. We couldn't be in better hands. Not only are our lives and our destinies in Jesus' hands completely, but his plans for us are good. They will for sure. It's an absolute certainty because God never, ever goes back on his promises. They will work for our ultimate joy in his glory. Everything that happens to you and I will work for our joy in his glory. John Patton, who was an old uh, missionary, <clears throat> wrote a book called on 30 years with the South Sea cannibals, which is where God had called him to minister, was an island filled with people that ate people. Okay, so when you think that you and I have it hard here in the West, think about John Patton. Okay, so goes into this place filled with cannibals in order to bring the gospel of Jesus to these people. And this is what he says. As I had only once to die, I was content to leave the time and place and means in the hands of God. And how do you have contentment in the midst of living among cannibals? Functionally, by God's grace, believing that Jesus is in control of every, every area of your life. That you're in the good, gracious, and strong hands of Jesus. You and I will not die early. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, but to give you a future and a hope. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. It was written to the old covenant people of Israel, God's people, while they were in exile. But doesn't the heart of that text apply to you and I as Christians? Would we argue that? That no, the heart of that text doesn't apply to you and I as Christians? Doesn't Romans 8 validate that? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you guys to, to think about this as we close. What concerns you today? So we're going to do a time of corporate confession is what we call it for those who are uh, uh, Redemption Hill members or, or come on Sundays. For those of you who are new, we just call this a time of corporate confession. We just spend a few minutes confessing before the Lord before we come back up and we are assured of his grace in Jesus for those who trust in him. But I, I want you to consider what concerns you today, what makes your heart heavy, worried, afraid, downcast, or depressed. We, we are all guilty uh, for living as functional atheists from time to time, as if Jesus isn't really alive, as if he's really not ruling and reigning over all things. And then I want you to consider this as I read this final passage in closing. What might happen to that worry if you heard Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law of God on your behalf, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and died on your behalf, and is now triumphantly seated at the right hand of the Father, what, what might happen to the worry and the concern and the, the heaviness in your heart if you heard Jesus audibly speaking to, the, to these words that I'm about to read to you today? Listen to these words. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We don't strive for our best life now. We hope in our best life later. And it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's our prayer out of Psalm 90. So teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. It is a good thing for you and I to know that we are like a mist. It's a good thing to number your days. It's a good thing to know that you and I, unless Jesus returns, will die one day. It brings things into right perspective. It humbles us, and it takes us back to the feet of Jesus, who rules and reigns over all things, who is in absolute control over your life. You are in good hands, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And so let's pray toward that end, uh, and then we'll spend some time confessing.